All right, now don't throw anything at me here. Uh, when the teacher said group work in school, I was like, oh, not group work. That's the worst. But I do tonight want us to, we haven't done this in a while, but I think tonight would be really good for us to do that. Just get in groups of six to eight, whatever feels good and right around you. Extra points if you're with somebody you don't know very well. That's part of the, the goal of doing this. It's not that it's the same people, but it may be somebody you don't uh, know well. And we're not going to rush. I'd love us to take, I don't know, eight or ten minutes just to share the Lord's work in your life. And, and really talk about, this is how I see God at work in my life. These are people I'm praying for their spiritual growth or I'm praying for their salvation. Things you could share with six or eight people that you wouldn't be able to share in a, in a full group. So let's take a time to, to be the church with one another. Circle up, six, eight people. I'll, I'll, bring, us, uh, I'll bring us back together here in a few minutes. So uh, don't leave anybody out. Circle up. We'll make this happen. Sorry for the group work. We don't do this every time. What's up, bud? Good to see you. Oh, I forgot to turn my mic off. All right, Emmaus. Let me, uh, if your group's finishing up, continue to do that. I'm going to pray for us right now, though, just uh, as, we, as we prepare. So let's, let's take a moment to pray, pray for each other right now. Father, thank you for this opportunity tonight to, to gather in prayer, to, to gather for a time of Bible study and, and singing together to encourage one another. God, we want to, to make this part of who we are as a church, that we are caring for one another, getting to know one another the way we talked about in our, our group and, and sharing stories of how we see you at work. And so, God, thank you for what that means. And I do pray for, uh, for each person here that as we prepare to leave here in just a little bit, that we would be aware of opportunities we have to pray for each other throughout the week and to care for people in need and most of all to share your love with those around us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Emmaus, we're going to do one other thing here and then I promise we're going right into Bible study. What, what we're going to do, Roger, here in a second, I'll tell you when, I'm going to need you to turn my mic off, but um, Multiply Church in Calgary Canada that we partner with as as a church they're having their second anniversary their second birthday as a church coming up in just a little bit so Chris who's the pastor there at Multiply Church he asked if we would all their partner churches would do a 15 to 20 second video celebrating their uh, their birthday as a, as a church so here's what we're going to do I'm so bad at technologies and selfies, but we're going to try this, okay? So here in just a second, I'm going to turn my mic off, and then I'm going to do this with the phone. I'm going to scan it across, and you all are going to wave and say, happy birthday, multiply. We'll see how that works out. And then I'm supposed to say something on the video about, video about us praying for them, and it can't be longer than 15 seconds, okay? So... <laughs> That's how, that's how this is supposed to work. He's supposed to put all these videos together from churches. Uh, okay. All right. So here we go. Roger, turn this off here.
some group in Canada that's very excited that we're uh, that we're supporting their church. What was that movie where they uh, the horror movie where they had the camera that they, you get all like it just goes all over the place? That looked like my video work, right there. All right, Matthew chapter twenty-two. I have no idea how those of you who have personal businesses and take selfies. Farshid, I should have had you doing this. I had completely the wrong pastor. If you want to see a well-done video of yourself sharing something, Farshid is the expert at that on Facebook. So uh, we, we had the wrong person doing that. Um, all right, Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 41. We're going to do the end of chapter 22 and the beginning of chapter 23. Matthew twenty-two, forty-one. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, what's going on at the end of Matthew 22? What's going on there? Verse 41, it says, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. The reason that's important is because Jesus has just been asked three questions. Two by the Pharisees, one by the Sadducees. All these people are gathered around. They finally give up. Every time they ask Jesus a question, it gets turned back on them. The people marvel at the teaching of Jesus. And so now it's Jesus' turn to ask them a question. They've asked him three questions. He's going to turn around and ask them a question. So what's the question? Verse 42 what do you think about the Christ? Remember when you see the word Christ, that it's the word for Messiah. Christ is not, as we sometimes think of or use it in Jesus' last name, Christ is a reference to who Jesus would be. He'd be the Christ, the Messiah, the one who would come. If you have kids or grandkids, with our kids, when we talk about Messiah, the word rescuer seems to work well with little kids when you talk about Messiah. It might not be the most precise term, but it works. When you say Christ or Messiah, for a little kid, and frankly for us as adults, it just doesn't connect. Like, what are we talking there about the Messiah? The Messiah was the anointed one that the Lord would send to rescue his people, to rescue them from evil, to rescue them from their enemies, to call them back to himself. And so we've just found with our kids that rescuer works really well. If you have other ideas, go with it but that's something we use a lot so what do you think about the Christ the one who's going to be the Messiah the one who's going to be the rescuer whose son is he now he's not asking about directly fatherhood like he's not asking who's his dad he's asking about his line of ancestry from whom would he come who would the son come from and they turn around at the end of 42, and they give the answer that anybody in the first century who was a Jewish religious person would have given in this situation. And they say, well, he's the son of David. 
Of course he is. Everyone would have known that the Messiah that the Lord was going to send would come from the line of David. Now what you have to see is the importance of this phrase in the Gospel of Matthew. So if you go back to chapter 1, so hold your place in 22, and in your phone or your Bible, go back to Matthew chapter 1. Because I, I don't want to overstate the case here. We don't want to get too much into Matthew's head as the gospel writer. But in some sense, you could see all of the gospel of Matthew leading up to this particular question that Jesus is asking them here. He's already asked a very similar question to his disciples in Matthew 16. And we've seen the way that Peter replied there, giving a good answer but still coming to an understanding of the Messiah. But remember, if we go back to Matthew 1, the whole book starts like this. Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then you get all the way down to um, verse 17. It reminds us, chapter 1, verse 17, it reminds us that the genealogy there is split up into sections. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon were 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And then David is actually mentioned again in verse 20. So chapter 1, verse 20, when the angel of the Lord comes, he says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. <laughs> so Matthew is giving plenty of hints up to this point that he's trying to show that Jesus is coming as the Messiah. He's coming as the son of David. All right, so if you go back to Matthew 22, when they say in verse 42, whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David, they've answered correctly. It's not that they've missed on their answer. They've answered correctly. But, like happens so many times in the Gospels, they don't fully understand what it looks like for the Messiah to come. They don't fully understand who the Messiah will be when he shows up. And so that's why Jesus turns around in 43 and he says this. Chapter 22, verse 43. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the Holy Spirit, or by the power of the Holy Spirit, how does he call him Lord, the one who will be the Christ, why does David refer to him as Lord, saying, verse 44, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, if that all sounds a bit confusing, it's understandable. I know it's a dreary day. We're late in the day. Totally understandable. That can be confusing. But do this for me. Go back to Psalm 110 in the Old Testament, because that quote that we just looked at there is a direct quote from Psalm 110 in the Old Testament. Just out of curiosity, does anybody know what makes Psalm 110 really famous in the Old Testament or what makes it stand out among Old Testament sections? Oh, the center, it actually is really close to the center. Yeah, it is. I hadn't thought about that, but it is. What, what makes it famous is Psalm 110 is the section of Scripture from the Old Testament, we would call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, most quoted and alluded to in the New Testament. 
So if you say what piece of the Hebrew Bible, what piece of the Old Testament was most used by the early church in the New Testament, it's Psalm 110. So we're connected back to Psalm 110 here, and watch how this psalm works. I don't know in phones, but in Bibles, you should have like the little font up there, the, the title of it, where it says a Psalm of David. So we know that this is coming as a Psalm of David. It's understood to be coming from David. In this psalm, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Again, this is the font issue in your Bible. But if you look at the first instance of Lord in verse 1, there's a chance it's in all caps and even looks just a little bit different. Oftentimes when you see that in the Old Testament, that is an indication that we're talking about the word Yahweh or how we would say Yahweh. Even The Jewish people wouldn't even have, have verbalized it in that way. But when you see Lord capitalized in that way, we're working with that word. But if you look at the second use of Lord in Psalm 110 verse 1, it's probably not capitalized, is it? Is it just written out in, in normal font? I sure hope it is. <laughs> uh, because it's supposed to be making a, a slight distinction there of, of the word that's being used. So the Lord, Yahweh, is saying, David says, the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, to, to David's Lord, to David's master. What does he say about David's Lord or David's master? He says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So it's a little tricky, but follow, follow Jesus' logic here. Who is the Messiah going to be when the Messiah comes? The Messiah is going to be the son of David. So on the family tree, David is going to be up higher than the Messiah. The Messiah comes as son of David. In Jewish culture, the further you went back in the genealogy, the more honorable and the more important somebody became. So we tend to think that whatever is new is better. <laughs> that, uh, we even think in terms of family, I want my kids to have a better life than I had. We, we think in those kind of terms. In a Jewish way of thinking, it would be as you go back on the family tree, people become greater and more honorable. Very much the opposite of the way we would think. So... Here's David on the family tree. Here's how people understand the Messiah on the family tree. He's going to come as a son of David. Except when David is speaking by the Holy Spirit, he calls this Messiah figure, my Lord. Now, if I went into Bennett's room at night, Bennett is my 11-year-old, if I went into my son's room and referred to him as my Lord or my master, we would all think that was particularly odd. It would be really odd in the Old Testament Jewish culture, in, in the time of Jesus. So sometimes we feel like our kids are bossing us around, <laughs> or we feel like they're trying to be our master or our Lord, but it, you're like, it, doesn't, it doesn't function like that. So what Jesus is getting at is the figure referred to by David in Psalm 110 must somehow be more honorable than David himself. And for the Jewish people, you did not get much more honorable than King David. To get higher than King David is, is a very big deal. So look how in Psalm 110 he's referred to. What, what do they say about this figure? Sit at my right hand. Ooh, that's a big deal. 
Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Then you go down to verse 4. Look at the language in verse 4 of 110. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, if that language sounds a little bit familiar, it comes from the book, not comes from, it's used in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament to speak about the divine nature of Jesus coming as as the Messiah. So there's another place in the New Testament this language is used. So you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand, verse 5. Now that is really strange, surprising language, that the Lord, this exalted figure, would be sitting to the right of, of Yahweh. He has a place of incredible power, unknown power uh, among the people. Verse 6, he will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. All right, so you see what, you see what Jesus is doing if you go back to Matthew 22. What Jesus is doing is that the people expected a Messiah would come. They expected a rescuer. And they expected that the rescuer would come from the line of David. He would be somehow related, a son of David. What they never imagined is that when he came, he would actually be greater than David himself. That's what they could not have imagined. That's how they were so shocked when Jesus comes. There's a neat connection here as well, because Matthew often will use this greater than language. Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus is the greater Sabbath. Jesus is the greater temple. Jesus is the greater Solomon. And now, this is Matthew's way of saying, and Jesus is the greater David. All these figures, all these aspects of the Old Testament that you so revere and you look to, when the Messiah comes, Jesus is greater than all those. He's come to fulfill those. He's come to transcend those in some way. So what happens in verse 45, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Verse 46, and no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So this is the ultimate, what we might call the ultimate mic drop for Jesus. <laughs> he has finally come to the point, drop the mic, they have nothing else to say, they, they don't know how to respond to him at, at this point. Then look what happens in chapter 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds, and to his disciples. Up to this point, he's been speaking primarily to the religious leaders. We're not going to find him speaking to the religious leaders anymore. He's changed his focus now. He's going to be speaking to the crowds and to his disciples. What does he say to the crowds and his disciples? He said, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. If you've ever heard the language that says, practice what you preach, (laughs) Jesus is saying that the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders are not doing that. They claim to sit on Moses' seat. What's Moses' seat here? Some people take it to be an actual, literal seat that was set up in the synagogues. We don't have great historical evidence for that. There may have been something referred to as Moses' seat where um, where the scrolls were stored. So if that's the case, if that proves to be true, it's Jesus' way of saying they're presenting the word of God to you. So they're sitting in a place where you had religious teachers 
who were presenting the word of God to you. The problem was they were teaching, they were presenting the word of God, but they weren't actually living it out themselves. Chapter 23 is just one verse after another that Jesus is speaking against the religion of the Pharisees and the scribes. It, it is a, it's an intense chapter. When you read chapter 23, and I'll try to say this on Sunday morning, I'll try to remind, remind you of this on Sunday morning. When you read chapter 23, think of it as the opposite of the Sermon on the Mount. When you study Matthew 23, there is so much language that parallels the Sermon on the Mount. Even if you look, even, I mean, just simply look back in verse 1. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the Sermon on the Mount begins with Jesus speaking to these same two groups, to the crowds and to his disciples. And then you have the situation of the scribes and the Pharisees sitting on Moses' seat. The Sermon on the Mount begins with Jesus coming and sitting down and beginning to teach the people. We could go all through here and you could see the parallels between those two sections. But when you read Matthew 23, see it as the opposite of the Sermon on the Mount. So the Sermon on the Mount was how we live as followers of Jesus. Matthew 23 is what it looks like what you, when you live and you're not a follower of Jesus. And you haven't understood what he came to do. Okay, let's look at what some of the things that happened here to the Pharisees. Verse 4. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. <laughs> so they burden other people, but they themselves are not willing to help. And in fact, they don't do most of the work themselves anyway. Uh, remember when Jesus was speaking to the people? And uh, is it the end of chapter 12? End of chapter 11. He says, my burden is easy and my yoke is light. This is the opposite of that. Jesus has promised a light burden and an easy yoke. They're putting extra burdens on people, the extra religious burdens. I don't know how this works at your house, but at our house, when we get home from the grocery store, Amanda is of the personality that it doesn't matter how many groceries we happen to buy on that trip, they all come in in one trip. Like the idea that you would take like two or three bags and maybe make like four or five trips back and forth to the car, Amanda's personality is like, nope, we can get them all at one time. Like just keep, keep adding bags. Just keep, you just put your arm out and we can, we can make more bags happen. Like we could always take, you know, the garage is right there. Like we could take a couple of trips back and forth. Nope, we're making it in in, in, one, in one haul. This is kind of the idea of you just keep adding the bags. You just keep adding them. Anybody else carry all the bags in at one time? Oh, man, there's a, yeah. Amanda, you have a lot of supporters uh, on, on that. So uh, they just keep adding more and more burdens on the people, but they won't come along and provide any relief. They're not showing a way forward. They're not pointing the people. And there almost seems to be an idea going on here that the Pharisees lived a life where they had the luxury of keeping a lot of the regulations and they were regulations that the common people would not have been able to keep. And I say this next part so carefully because I, I want it to be clear. Sometimes if we're not careful as leaders in a church or, or people in a religious leadership position, we can forget what it feels like 
to work an 8 to 5 job or honestly for many of you a 10 p.m. to 7 a.m. job. And, and so we find ourselves putting burdens, religious obligations, what feels like religious obligations on people when in regular day-to-day life, those are really hard to carry out. Like, yeah, Owen, you can do that because you only work one day a week. No, I don't. I work all the time, but, uh, but it feels like that. The Pharisees, religious leaders, they're living up in this world where they put all kinds of religious rules on people who are just trying to make it every day. <laughs> they just need a little bit of help every day, and all they're getting is more regulations, more rules, more weight put on them. And Jesus says, that's not what the way of Jesus is supposed to look like. That's not what it's supposed to look like when I show up. Okay, verse 5. Oh, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. There's... there's Sermon on the Mount language. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. Remember the phylactery was the little box that they would put the writing of the scripture in that box? This is, again, not a perfect analogy, but I think about you walk into someone's house and they try to show off their religious fervor by how big the family Bible is. Like, look at me, I carry a huge Bible. Like, we're really religious because we have a big family Bible. They were like, hey, look at us. We have these huge phylacteries and we're super religious because of the way that we appear. Um, They would have worn a lot of Christian t-shirts back in the day. Um, They want to look religious. Um, verse 6, they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. They want to be greeted in the marketplace, and they want to be called rabbi by others. And then Jesus says, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors or guides, for you have one instructor, the Christ the Pharisees, religious leaders, they wanted titles of prominence. They wanted to be referred to in ways that made them feel like they were particularly religious, that they were particularly important. Um, we see this show up in certain ways still, still today. Uh, even the way that religious leaders are referred to, sometimes there's the idea of you've got to call me reverend, or you have to call me doctor, or you have to call me pastor, or you have to call me brother. Those things are fine as a, as a title of honor. Uh, the danger is when the person in religious leadership needs to be called that to justify themselves, to make themselves feel important. Then you're starting to get into dangerous territory. Anytime you have to, um, anytime you have to validate your position by forcing people to call you in a particular way probably means you actually don't have the level of influence that you say you have. In, in that situation. How many of you referred to your pastor growing up as reverend so-and-so? Anybody refer to reverend? Okay. How many of you said brother so-and-so? Yeah, we're good Baptists, so we probably said that. Anybody call your pastor doctor so-and-so? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And what else did you guys use? Uh, dad? Well played, Roxy. Dad. That's awesome. Yeah. That's funny. We were joking around the office. Uh, we were joking around the office this week. The good old days when, past, not just pastors, but, but but many men were referred to by the first two initials of their name: first initial, middle initial, last name. Like just how dignified O.L. Niece sounds. Like that would have looked great on an old like pastor uh, pastor picture in in churches. And so this idea that. I have to be referred to a certain way to give prominence is a dangerous thing to get into. So, 
What is Jesus calling the people to? Well, verse 11, 23:11 says, "The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted." This section of Matthew is about raising high the Messiah, so understanding the power and the place of the Messiah as the Son of God, the one who would come as God himself, and making sure we understand our, understand us as his servants. We're humbly coming as servants of his. We raise him high. We find ourselves in the right position. In some way, Christian growth is not an upward trajectory, but a downward trajectory. Um, when you think about your Christian growth, don't think about climbing the ladder. Almost think about descending the ladder. When it looks like that we really grow in Christian maturity, we understand what it is to be servants of God and servants of one another, and we understand what it is to grow in humility. And so I hope this is a reminder of that tonight. God, don't let me get in a situation where I need to appear religious. Don't let me get in a situation where I want people to look at me. Don't get in a situation where I need a certain title or referred to in a certain way. I just want to worship you, and I want to love others, and I want to be a servant. That's where we want to get to. So let me pray for us, and we'll wrap up on that. God, thank you for the gift of being able to pray together tonight. God, thank you for all the things that were shared around this room. And, and as we leave here, God, I pray that we would practice what we preach. Let us not be people who sound religious and look religious, but our lives don't show that by how we live. God, we want to live in a way that serves others. We want to live in a way that is humble. And we want to live in a way that puts all the focus on Jesus because he is the one who is worthy of everything we have to give. So God, help us to know how to live in that way. And let that be true of us as a church. Let us not be a church that is showy or a church that needs to be spoken well of all the time. We just want to be servants. We want to be used by you and your kingdom. So God, do that work in, in our church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thank you again for being here tonight. God bless you. Be careful going home.